What's up everybody? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and this is a compilation style episode in particular for joint pain. So if you watched my latest video, we went over low back pain because that's like the most common injury that a lot of you guys uh, have been dealing with. So that kind of sparked an idea in my head where, you know what, I'm gonna put together um, a couple of videos. So this episode in particular, highly recommend that you watch it. Sure, you can listen to it. There's gonna be, you know, me describing everything, but it'll be better if you have a visual. But um, this episode in particular, we're gonna cover neck pain, hip pain, knee pain and elbow pain and each video is about 30-ish minutes so this monster of an episode is going to be long but very very informative and educational so i highly recommend you try to break this episode up or you know this weekend just hammer out the whole thing um, in each video i give you examples of why you know your neck is injured your hip, your knee, your elbow, whatever it is, and then give you some options of what you can do to improve those joints and what to stay away from and things like of that nature. So for anyone that is dealing with joint pain right now, this is going to be super helpful. And again, this is just scratching the surface. And I say that in those episodes where, you know, injury, it can be so many different things. Um, my biggest thing is when I take on a new client and we do a thorough assessment, the biggest thing that I look for is their past medical history. And a lot of times these injuries to these joints have something to do with a previous injury, a previous car accident, a previous something. And that joint itself is compensating for something or was already in a position where it just said, you know, F this shit tears, shit hurts. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Hopefully this episode gives you some insight and let's get right into it. What's up my podcast listeners? This is your host Rafael Matuszewski and this is another edition of the longer vlogs that I've been doing and I'm also excited because I ended up buying a ring light and I have that stupid thing that you see on Instagram and every other person on like TikTok where you can see the actual like fucking ring in my eye. Um, but I've been trying to upgrade my shit to make better quality videos for you guys. And the one thing that I kind of hated filming in this area where I have my gym space is the lighting. It's not the greatest. It's only good when it's like sunny outside and I have the natural sunlight coming in. But unfortunately, we live in Vancouver where it rains all the fucking time. So, got a ring light so I can, you know, start doing my makeup tutorials and all that shit. Just kidding. Um, so, today, what we're going to go over is neck pain because I had someone on my Instagram reach out and was asking about um, what to do with neck pain. So, it's kind of a really, really big um, topic because it's so specific from person to person. There's a lot of stuff that goes on and I'm gonna try to make this episode more so for exercise applications and maybe a little bit of treatment and what you should kind of look for. So I think we've all experienced, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
those times where, you know, you wake up and you turn a little bit too quickly and then your whole, like, fucking neck just, like, tells you to just F off and it's stiff for the rest of the day and it's one of those, like, I'm going to turn this way and I can go all the way. But then when I turn this way, it's like, mm, I'm stuck type of thing. So there's a lot of stuff that can be going on. But let's say it's more of a musculoskeletal issue, and a lot of times it's stress-related and posture-related. So if you are like me and everybody else in the world right now, and at least in North America, we are all um, it's called working in front of a laptop a lot more than pre-COVID because a lot of times people have now been working from home. Companies have figured out that, hey, maybe we don't even have to like pay rent or our lease because everyone's able to do their shit from home and they're actually productive and we don't have to worry about, you know, shit. So um, now we have a lot of people at home working from their laptops. Um, like for me, sometimes I will go from my desk to on my bed, to the couch, to wherever, but I'm always constantly sitting. And, you know, thankfully I haven't had any neck pain in a long time, but usually when people are in prolonged positions, things get tight, and I'm using air quotes, um, that will kind of seize up movement. And we all know that our joints are designed to move. So what happens when we don't move our joints anymore? bad things tend to happen. Things get stiff, things get, you know, grindy, they get kind of stuck, kind of like old gum, and they can't really move. So the neck kind of um, falls into that line. And when you think about it, like, our neck does a lot of movement. It can go into flexion, it can go to extension, it can go to left rotation, right rotation, lateral flexion, both sides, right? So when we limit that, we find out how you know, important our neck is when it comes to daily movements. And when you look at um, developmental stages of children while they're, I don't know, say at that stage where they're lying on their back, the first thing they learn is how to move their neck around. And it follows with like, as their eyes move to a certain direction, their head will learn how to follow that movement. And it's usually because they're looking for mom, right? So that's how we develop neck stability and neck strength is all from that developmental stage. So imagine like as a baby and a toddler growing up, your neck is going through all these different stages of movement to produce a strong, solid neck. And then out of nowhere, we go sit in front of our laptops or phones or whatever it is and just stay there and stiff. So we're literally taking a joint that's designed to move and be very intricate and that allows us to kind of initiate any kind of, you know, movement or uh, thought process or reaching for something and just eliminate that ability right away so bad things tend to happen. So there's a couple things that we can do from an exercise perspective. Number one is just move it. And the number one thing that I always do is something called neck cars. So we've gone over the whole, you know, what are controlled articular rotations, but more specifically the neck. So if the number one best way to combat neck pain is to um, move it. And the biggest thing that I always tell people when they do cars 
is um, never go through pain. So our nervous system has a really good ability to um, remember pain and will prevent the motion further so you don't hurt yourself. So if you know my neck hurts going this way, you get those pain signals right away to stop you from going any further because it'll make it worse. So your nervous system will remember that. So then next time you go, it'll take that ability away from you. And many of you will have this experience before is when you do wake up that morning and you're like, oh yeah, my neck is super stiff. And then, you know, you're driving, you try to like shoulder check to the direction where your neck doesn't move. You get that sharp pain and you realize like as the day progresses, it gets worse and worse. And you're like, now I can't move my neck at all. Right? So a lot of times, um, from a exercise standpoint, you can easily start doing neck cars or just moving your neck through ranges of motion, right? So um, to quickly demonstrate a neck car is simply going straight down to the left or right, around up towards ceiling, over to the other side, around and back. And then you would come back the same way you came, all the way around and back. So. Every time I show cars, people just assume that that's how their neck or joint or whatever joint I'm showing them is supposed to move. But you'll notice that the biggest thing that I also do um, from like an assessment standpoint is when I'm working with a patient or a client uh, dealing with neck or we'll get into that stuff later, um, any kind of neck issues or anything within this area, a lot of times I'm looking at compensation patterns. So almost everyone, so if you look at my shoulders, they should stay square. I'm just moving this section. So if I went down, most of the time when people start looking to the left or right, the shoulder kind of comes up, right? So that's a compensation pattern. So now I'm thinking, okay, so now this might be like trap related, might be like upper T-spine that's causing that um, uh, limitation. And it's like, as people go up towards the ceiling and over to the other side, boom, this happens again. So I'm like, okay, maybe it's not actually the neck that's the issue. It might be like the stuff right below the neck. So if you think of like your cervical spine and that junction like right in here that goes into your T-spine might not be moving um, effectively. And that could be one of the reasons why um, you're presented with neck pain. So. The next kind of thing is to look at um, um, T-spine extension and the movement. And sometimes like I'll get people doing the slow cat cow. So if you haven't seen this, essentially what it is, is like if you think about the cat cow exercise where you go um, with your spine through flexion and extension, I do a small um, assessment. It's actually in my ebook, The Ironclad Body Training System, um, which by the way, I'm editing it right now and it's coming together. So I'm hopeful that this summer I'll be able, able to release it. But anyway, I'm looking at if every single segment of the spine can move interdependently. And a lot of times people are really good at moving their lumbar spine, but the rest of the spine is just garbage. But usually up through here is really, really, really limited. It kind of just like comes into one block. Like people don't really know how to move through like T1, T2, T3, um, which is usually that area, that um, cervical um, T-spine junction where a lot of stuff gets 
really, really, really tight and jammed up and then people can move through it. So this comes to like treatment modalities, but I'm gonna go from like stuff you can do to what um, I'm not a medical professional, but like a practitioner can do. So if I know that, okay, I'm doing neck cars to help movement, um, maybe I'm gonna go through exercise a little bit more, but neck cars would be one. Number two is like um, chin tucks. So a lot of times the best way, because a lot of times everyone's here like all day. So being able to learn how to get back here is going to be huge for a lot of people. Because if you think about me going into a kind of a chin tuck, one, I'm centrating my CT um, junction into a more stacked position. So if you think of someone doing a really, really heavy deadlift, they're not here with their neck. They're trying to find neutral with their entire spine to be one strong, solid piece. So a lot of times if I'm coaching the chin tuck, the easiest thing to do is to think about if you were driving your car and you're trying to get the back of your head into the headrest, right? So this position, like, think about it. We all know that if you're doing so much like pressing work, you're, you're gonna end up with shoulders and rounding forward, right? So if, I'm always pushing my head forward because I'm on my laptop, my phone, whatever it is, then naturally this stuff in here will probably get tight and kind of keep everything hunched forward. So if I can find exercises where I'm constantly like readjusting into those tucks, then 100% is gonna start moving and feeling better. Um, sorry about that. my. Someone was calling me and now I have to redo the video. But, um, so same thing, like if all this stuff is tight and it's pushing me forward, the natural like idea and concept is to constantly push it back. So chin tucks are gonna definitely help. And another like way to think about um, creating neck stability or neck strength or exercises that require it. So deadlifts is a great one. So people won't really think about that as like, how can I like strengthen my neck without like neck specific exercise? Because that's what people think is like, oh, am I gonna put like the head harness and like start doing these things? Like no, um, but deadlifts, like if you really think about it, like being in that centrated position and then going through the motion is going to help a lot. Um, the Turkish getup, huge, huge, huge for like neck postural positions and um, keeping that neck stable. Because if you think about lying on your back and coming across the body, like all of this stuff needs to turn on and kind of stay in the position. Because if you do a Turkish getup with a forward head posture, it's not gonna feel good, not gonna feel good. So you, your body's naturally gonna go into that more neutral position. And so imagine if I had a program for someone with neck pain and it's like I gave them deadlifts and the Turkish getup, like that's gonna fix a lot of things. Um, on top of that, if we did our neck cars and the chin retractions, the other one, kind of from the DNS world, um, it's kind of like, uh, I think they call it like the prone three month uh, drill. So if I was lying on my chest and belly on the ground and my hands out or out here, and I kind of start in this position, but I push back again and I can like engage my lats and my um, shoulder blade like stabilizers, and hold for a second and then reset. Push, hold, and reset. Like small movements, well those are like, like the developmental stages of 
um, all those small little intricate muscles responsible for um, your neck. Uh, so now kind of going into more soft tissue, musculoskeletal treatment stuff. So you can only do so much with exercise, right? So um, if I were to help someone with neck pain specifically, go over all those exercises we just talked about, the next thing would be some soft tissue work. So I would be rolling like crazy, um, especially on T-spine, lats, um, anything that really connects into the neck. And I'm automatically just thinking about all of the kind of like trap musculature, like rhomboids, um, again, like even rotator cuff. If you think about the motions that we do with our arm, like it all connects into our neck because guaranteed everyone has had this happen to them. Your cell phone falls in between that little area where your car seat is and like where you buckle your seatbelt. It goes underneath and then you like take your right hand and you like try to like find it and then like because you're using your arm in this weird position then you get that sharp pull through. Um, so guaranteed all this musculature around that arm 100% connected to the neck. Um, another thing with exercise I didn't mention, so going back to people that can't move through here, um, spinal extensions on the foam roller will really, really help. Um, scapular car, so if I was on my hands and knees in kind of like a quadruped position, and I was doing scapular push-ups and really focusing on getting those moving and also learning how to do the circles as well is going to help a lot. Um, so now going back to the soft tissue stuff, lacrosse ball all along here, I would even get the ball into the occipital region. So all these muscles that kind of go to the back of the skull against a wall. And sometimes it might just be like you pushing your head, doing a chin tuck again against the ball, just to get those like tight points through here would be super helpful. Now from like a treatment modality, there's a couple things. Um, I use cups a lot in clinic and also for myself. Um, so again, cupping, um, it's gonna be a whole nother podcast, but um, I'm not gonna get into like the science and the research on cupping because it's a whole fucking shitstorm, and I've had online debates on this but at the end of the day if the goal is to move and feel better and i put a paper towel on your elbow and miraculously you're like my elbow feels better why would i want to take away that you know input that's making your elbow feel better if it's not supported by research like come on anyway cups if you look at the nature of cupping, it lifts that fascial um, shit underneath your uh, skin. And we all know if fascia gets tight and you don't have movement, it kind of gets harder and harder and harder. So now if we lift and add some room between the fascial layers underneath your skin, you'll have a little bit more movement. You're gonna have blood flow to the area. So a lot of times just cupping like through the traps going into the neck about here, and then adding movement on top of it is money when it comes to getting a little bit more movement through the neck and kind of subsiding pain. Um, the other thing too is like massage, duh. 
any like manual practitioners putting their hands on your traps and neck are going to help a lot. But a lot of times it's just like, if you think about our lives right now, it's, there's a lot of, um, what's it called? Uh, stress and tension and we're here all the fucking time. So a lot of times it's like, maybe it's not really like the musculoskeletal thing. It's just your nervous system, like squeezing the shit out of everything and keeping you there. And maybe all you need is like, settle shit down and a lot of times it's like let's breathe let and that's another thing too like breathing can help with this stuff a lot of us breathe through our chest and all these accessory muscles in the neck become hyperactive tight whereas maybe we just learn how to breathe through our diaphragm and all this can settle down we do a little soft tissue stuff maybe like put a cup on each side bilaterally and do some scapular cars some neck cars and boom like you got some better movement you're feeling better like who would have thought um the other thing too is like you can go see a physiotherapist get some like ims needling through the traps that can help a lot um chiropractors they're amazing if you believe in that thing again i've had endless um arguments with people online but it's funny like one person has a bad experience and then just kibosh the whole profession like you don't do that with medical doctors like oh well i saw one medical doctor and i had a bad experience so all medical doctors are full of shit like it, it's finding the right person that understands um what you're going through and what you need in order to feel better so if you trust chiropractors, awesome. If you don't, go see a physiotherapist, go see a massage therapist, whatever it is, just getting some soft tissue stuff. So the one of the things that I, again, I'm biased, I work with chiropractors, but I've worked with physiotherapists in the past. But the thing that um, an adjustment can do is if you have your facet joints in your um, vertebrae that are just like, just jammed. Because think about it, like, if your muscles are tight, again, air quotes, it's preventing motion, it's probably getting tight around the joint itself. So imagine if you added space between the joint, now those muscles don't have to stay tight anymore, right? So like having a neck adjustment or a CT adjustment can do wonders for your neck. I know it's super scary to think about someone jamming your neck around, but honestly, like, the amount of force that a chiropractor uses is nowhere near the kind of force you would see in a UFC fight when one dude is like literally putting their entire strength to like choke the other guy out and somehow that guy still has a neck attached to his body. Like, at least try it, right? You have nothing to lose. Um, but those are kind of the thought process that I kind of go into when I'm dealing with neck pain. But again, like it's changing the stuff that you're doing. Like the reason why your neck hurts is probably because of um, repetitive nature, movement behaviors that you picked up and poor posture. So it's like you eliminate those uh, pain triggers and then there's no neck pain. But the biggest thing is like, I have this running joke like, when people are dealing with X, Y, and Z in the clinic, and it's like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, fucking kin stretch. Like, move. Like, people just need to move their body. And I can, you know, arrogantly say that 
if I took, say, all the people watching this and listening to this, whatever pain that you have right now, if I took the time to assess you and create a movement workout like Kin Stretch designed specifically for you, guaranteed in three months your pain from like out of 10 is like say a seven, it'll go down to a four without any other like stuff. But a lot of people don't take the time to put those, um, they call those uh, principles into practice. Like a lot of people are just um, dealing with the painful effects right there and then. So if you think about it, like I see this in clinic all the time. It's like person comes in, neck pain, like, oh my God, like it's so bad, I can't do it. And they just come in for treatment. And then after it kind of gets a little bit better and they feel like they can go back to normal life, they just stop coming, right? And people only come to the clinic when they're like in dire need. And really what we try to educate people at the clinic is that you should be coming in before shit happens. Cause there's always stuff that we can work on. But then you get to a point where it's like, treatments like not providing you any kind of benefit and now you just need to move like create a protective mechanism on your joints and body so then you don't have to keep coming right so when i get people doing kin stretch or just any kind of movement modality exercise strength training whatever it is things start feeling better but a lot of times people just don't want to put the effort in to make a difference you know like I can literally take someone who's in incredible pain, like musculoskeletal pain, and give them the best written program for them. And all they have to do is do it. They won't. They won't. Right? Like, literally giving you the secret sauce of, like, if you do this thing, these five exercises every day, it'll only take you five minutes. Do it for three months, guaranteed your pain will go down. They won't do it. They won't do it. So it becomes this bigger question of like, what do you want? You know, like everything that's worth in this life takes effort. But a lot of people just go down the easier route or they kind of just wallow in, you know, what was me? Like my neck hurts, my shoulder hurts. It's just part of life part. And like, this is the thing. I hate when people are like, oh, I'm just getting old. It's like, no, you're not getting old. You're just becoming inactive and because you're 40, 50, 60, because you haven't been doing anything at those milestones for like the last 10 years, the last 20 years, the last 30 years, you getting old just means that you haven't done anything with your body in so long and that's why you're in pain. Age doesn't matter, right? Like, you know, I'm still really, really young and you know, when I get like a tweak here and there, like clients will make fun of me and go, oh, now you're finally getting old and now you know what it feels like. And, you know, I will like, I think the last thing I've injured was my elbow and I think I brought this up, but in two days, gone. Cause I have the tools and my knowledge to know how to fix it. I did some cupping. I did some instrument assisted, um, soft tissue mobilization, did a bunch of elbow cars, wrist cars, shoulder cars, more than usual for it. Two days later, fine. Now imagine if people did stuff like that, anytime something happens to their joints or muscle, tendon, whatever it is, 
their body's going to move really, really, really well without any pain for a long time. And, you know, I can't wait on my podcast to bring this episode up again, like 10 years from now and still be like, you know, I'm this old. I'm never going to say my age because I want to keep that as a secret. And if anyone can figure it out who doesn't know me personally, shoot it, shoot me an email or DM on Instagram. But, um, you know, 10 years from now and be like, I'm still following my advice. Nothing's been hurting me. I've had small aches and pains, took care of it, and that's it. And like every 10 years, I'm going to bring this up over and over and over again to prove my point. Because there's other people in the industry that are older and they move incredibly well. Like if you look at Dr. Andrew Ospina, who's the creator of um, the FRS system, which is the FRC, Kim Stretch, the FR, everything like that. Like the dude's probably like 45, 46. And he moves better than me. Like, I look at that guy, I'm like, fuck. Like, I want to be like him when I'm his age. Like, he moves really, really, really well. And I remember the first time I took my FRC certification three years ago, um, he was teaching it. And he was like four weeks post-off from an ACL surgery. And he was able to pistol squat. I'm like, fuck. And the only reason why is because of his knowledge of movement of how wide so important to move and he said like the moment that he like woke up from his surgery he was already putting the principles into practice so it's like the information's there and like i could give you guys all of this stuff but it doesn't fucking matter until you actually put into practice so that's my challenge for everyone um watching and listening is that if i give you all these exercises like i post exercise every single week but I would guarantee that 99% of you actually don't put those things into practice. And I write a lot of good information about the exercise. So probably 99% of the people who see it won't do anything about it. And then that 1% who will implement it will probably not even read what I'm posting and just watch it. You know what I mean? So my challenge for you guys now is every time that I post something that is, you know, pretty good content in my opinion to do something about it you know take the exercise i post tomorrow or a week from now into your workouts if i say do this three like the post i did a couple weeks ago about the rib rolls the open books and the arm sweeps and i say said that if you are working out today do these three did you do those three probably not and that having a better t-spine is going to give less work for your neck to to take up on that so I'm giving you all the tools and it just matters whether or not you're going to actually follow through. So that's my challenge. Hopefully this episode is helpful on the neck pain. If you have any more specific questions about neck pain, let me know. I'm more than happy to help. Um, there's a lot of different um, ways to go about um, the whole neck thing. There's a lot of stuff connected to it. And I'm more than happy to help anyone who's had neck issues, neck injuries. Maybe it's a brachial plexus thing. Like, let me know. I'm more than happy to help. Um, hit the show notes. If you're listening, watch the video if you like. I didn't demo a lot, so it's not that big. But I guess you can see my new ring light. Um, 
Again, hit the channel to add me on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Everyone's actually been listening and have been subscribing, so thank you for listening. You guys are awesome. Just as we were talking about, have you actually been watching my stuff and implementing it and listening? But you guys do listen, so continue subscribing because I post new videos all the time. Um, where was I going with that? Again, hit the show notes again. Add me on Facebook and Instagram, and also... Um, five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you listen to so we can produce this show out to the masses so more people can listen. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are amazing. Until next time. What's up, my podcast listeners and all my YouTube subscribers, watchers, whatever you want to be called. Um, today's topic that we're going to get into is hip pain, hip anatomy, and why you should fucking care about it because everything we do in the gym and every day in life uh, revolves around having healthy hips. Um, most realistic, I can't speak. Most recently, um, someone on my Instagram sent me this long message about their hip issues and on, I'm gonna adjust this thing. Um, their hip issues and they get some weird pinching in the front of their hip every time they do a back squat. And, you know, we were going back and forth to figure out what's going on. And, you know what, I just decided that, you know what, rather than just going back and forth, I'll probably just do a whole podcast episode about um, hip anatomy and why most people get... Um, pain in their hip. So for my listeners, I'm going to try to be as, you know, descriptive as possible because I am going to demonstrate what the hip can do. Um, simple things that you can utilize, um, from an exercise perspective to get more hip mobility and kind of where my thought process is when it comes to, you know, training clients and seeing patients and, you know, just troubleshooting. Um, so the big thing, and I brought my laptop with me to kind of showcase um, how the hip kind of looks, and hopefully it'll turn out, because sometimes, you know, when you put a computer screen on camera, it just doesn't look the greatest. It's kind of like grainy, and yeah. So the first thing that I kind of want to showcase, and hopefully I'll be able to bring this up and have it like full screen and all that jazz um, is how the hip is structured because it's super, super important when it comes to um, pain and figuring shit out. Okay, so hopefully this, actually it's not too bad, but you can freaking see my ring light in there. But um, the biggest thing from here that I want people to kind of take away from is the hip is a ball and socket joint just like your shoulder so it's designed to move quite a bit and the biggest thing that I see when people are limited with hip mobility is what we call the workspace between your uh, femoral head and the acetabulum so essentially what that means is that you know we have your acetabulum your hip socket and it's kind of that's how it's going to look. Um, and then your femoral head. 
going into each other like this. And ideally, the space between my fist and my hand, there should be enough that when I, you know, put my hip into flexion or extension or whatever other space I want to move my um, hip into, this can glide easily. So a lot of times when people have um, hip pain, hip um, limited hip mobility, the workspace kind of gets a little bit almost to a pinching kind of position or it just has enough space in the beginning but then when as you go it kind of starts rubbing against the actual socket itself and gets stuck or all the surrounding structures around it so that's the other thing is like in this photo which i'll bring up again um you know it demonstrates a good visual visual I can't speak visualization of the femoral head and acetabulum and it you know fits quite well but there's also all this other shit that wraps around it of like you know tendinous structure ligaments then your muscle fascia all that kind of surrounds it so now we also have a perspective of all those um structures that could influence how your hip moves so the biggest thing is that you know if we don't have enough workspace for that joint to move then other things are going to compensate for it and it's usually not a good idea and usually will present a lot of pain that being said if you look at what is needed for say something like a squat you need adequate hip mobility um before I go any further with that, I want to kind of go over what um, your hip joint can do. So your hip can go into flexion, extension. It can internally rotate, externally rotate. It can do adduction and adduction. So I'm going to showcase some examples of that. And hopefully my trusty new ring light will be able to have me show what I am talking about. And I apologize for all the awkward and back and forth that we're about to do. So if I'm in a standing position from a side view, if I wanted to bring my right hip into flexion, this is flexion, right? The big thing, if you think of, I'm gonna start doing lunges, I'm gonna start doing running, step ups, like anything that requires my hip to go into this position, mountain climbers, um, every freaking core exercise you can think of, and even the ones that I hate, like fucking crunches. Anyway, um, when people have limited hip flexion, which is probably a lot of you, and generally for all the general uh, population people, um, they don't have a lot of hip flexion because... If we are in a seated position like this all day, what do you think you're influencing with all this tissue here? It's going to get the information to stay tight, to stay stiff, because you're here all day, so it wants to make you a little bit more efficient in that position. So when you have to demonstrate hip flexion in any kind of exercise, what usually happens is you start going and your body goes, oh, you don't have any more hip flexion. Let me give it to you by doing one of these. So now my lumbar spine is going into play to give me a false sense of um, hip flexion. 
And now if you see my other needs going into this weird bit of um, knee flexion to, again, give me more uh, fake hip flexion. And I tell this to like every single person I work with that our bodies are really good at cheating movement without even us knowing it. So when I, you know, teach my kin stretch class and we're going through cars head to toe, we're not just moving our joints. I'm also assessing how everyone's moving too. And a lot of times when people try to say, do their neck cars and they're like looking down, they're going to the left and this shoulder hikes up and now their whole torso is moving with their neck. And I'm like, your neck doesn't move like a neck should. There's going to be some issues down the road. So now I'm seeing, you know, people with hip flexion problems and I'm like, okay, well, literally almost everything we do in the gym requires hip flexion. Now, if your hip can't move like a hip, then you can't do hip things, right? It's, it's that simple if you really, really think about it. So when we see that, it's a compensation pattern. And, you know, I'm going to take this one step further. Actually, I might go back to that. Um... Actually, no, I'm gonna go right into it right now. That's hip flexion. We're gonna go look at hip extension. So if you take my example of my right hip, I'm gonna extend back. That's hip flexion, right? To you who may not learn a lot about biomechanics or whatever it is, that might've looked like, it's like, oh, that's not a lot of hip extension. But if you look at how far a hip should extend, it's 20 degrees. That's not a lot, but you will see all those Instagram IG models doing the freaking like cable around the ankle, doing one of these to get their glutes going. But all that really does is just require you to go into lumbar extension. You're actually not doing any like favors for your actual glutes, all lower back. So when you think about, I need to have adequate hip extension, it's 20 degrees, I should just feel my glute. But a lot of times people don't have enough hip extension. So what's the um, compensation for that? That is a lot of times lower back and hamstring. And like how many times have you had the experience or you know someone who's had experiences where they're doing glute bridges and they're like, oh yeah, my hamstrings just feel like they're like cramping and they're about to go. Or you have like people who do barbell hip thrusts and they're like, yeah, sometimes my lower back hurts or like my hamstrings are just like on fire. I can never feel glutes. So this is what I want to get into. So if I know that someone has like terrible hip extension or they're just so used to just extending their lumbar spine and they're a client or someone online where they're like, I've been following this like glute program for in six months and my glutes have not changed or whatsoever or, or anything. So then I would go assess, say, their hip and realize that you have like zero hip extension. You're doing all your extension through your lumbar spine. You're never going to grow your glutes that way. So if I can get your hip to be able to access all the tissue you want to work on, it would make sense to work on mobility before slapping a barbell on your hips and thrusting like no tomorrow, right? Like that makes sense. And honestly, it doesn't matter how much um, hip thrusts or any other booty band exercise you throw onto yourself, you're never going to get bigger glutes or nicer looking glutes if you can't fully extend the hip, right? Like it's exactly the same as like, 
hey, I want big biceps and I'm gonna do bicep curls, but imagine your elbow joint not being able to do this and it just stops here, right? Common sense tells you that, well, fuck, now I can't do you know, adequate bicep curls and really grow my bicep if I can't fully go into flexion with my elbow, right? But for some reason, when people think of like lower body exercises, everything works properly. You know what I mean? Like, no, like everyone's hip is a little bit different than the person beside you. Your hips are different than my hips. My right hip socket is different than my left hip socket. And that plays a huge role in how I'm gonna squat, how I'm gonna deadlift, how I'm gonna lunge, how I'm gonna run and everything else, right? So people need to understand that if your hip does not move like a hip should, then when you try to challenge your joint, your hip joint to do hip things, it's probably not gonna work out that well, right? So we need to understand that we've gone over two different motions that a hip can do, hip flexion, hip extension. Those two things, a lot of times people suck at. And it really comes down to way too much sitting and now it's a lot worse because of COVID, everyone's working from home or on Zoom calls all the time. So another um, movement that our hip can do is abduct. So if I was standing and I'm taking my right leg, I'm gonna go out this way to the side. That's abduction. So if you think of the hip joint itself, going back to that photo that I showed, I have my you know acetabulum and the, my um, femoral head, and to make it a little bit more specific, hip, and now I have my leg down here. So now if I'm trying to abduct and go out to the side, imagine if I don't have all the tissue out here mobile enough to get me to do this. So what's gonna happen is I'm gonna end up doing one of these like hikes with my whole pelvis in order to get there. Now, most of the time people have pretty good um, mobility for abduction, but on the slim chance where people's hips are just terrible, they're gonna end up doing every, again, going back to that glute example, every like abduction, like um, glute, mead exercise with the band, but really at a certain point, they're gonna get to a position where they're just doing this, they're just hiking their hip up and not actually utilizing just those muscles required for that lateral movement, right? So again, you can slap all the best booty band exercises, best glute exercises in the world on a hip that doesn't move like a hip does, you're not gonna get the result that you're looking for, right? And this is where I'm trying to bridge the gap on my podcast, on, on video and on um, audio to have everyone realize that, you know, I'm talking a lot about like rehab and mobility and movement and stuff like that, but it directly translates to um, all your weight loss, all your aesthetic goals. So like that's another whole nother realm that people don't think of because it's like you get a general population person, they're like, oh yeah, I want to lose weight and they're trying to go to the gym, but everything fucking hurts for some reason. They have no idea why and then they're like, oh, well, I guess I'll like stop and like hopefully I'll feel better and then I'll go back to the gym again. But it's like, no, you're hitting a square peg in a round hole constantly and you don't know why. And people just assume that their bodies are able to move just like anyone else's, but that's not the case. So that's abduction. Adduction. Basically the opposite of what we just went over and it's literally taking your hip to the midline of your body. 
for this one, using those adductors of your hip, and we're gonna go into like a little bit more um, anatomy and things like that um, soon, and I'll try to pull something up. Um, the big thing there is a lot of people pull their groin um, or just have like zero um, control over their adductors. And if you look at, you know what, I'm gonna pull this up. If you look at the anatomy of our adductors, and I literally like, I've been writing a lot about this in my book. Um, come on, Google. I feel like I should have saved all these right off the bat. Let's look at maybe this. Sorry, you guys. So if we look at, come on, focus, there you go. Some of the adductors that connect to the hip. So if you remember, femoral head, ball and socket, right at the top here. And I'm sorry if my ring light's getting in the way. And now you have this visualization of all these muscles that connect deep within the hip, going all the way down to your knee. And then we have a couple muscles that duct and also flex the hip that also go from the hip and crosses the knee joint. And now you can see this continuum of how our anatomy influences more than one joint and more than, you know, I'm doing these exercises with the mini band around my ankle, right? So with adduction, I find a lot of people are super weak with their adductors. And a simple um, example of that is literally, um, Getting someone in a 90-90, and I'm going to see if I can get you guys low enough to see me. And this is the nice thing with this ring light. I got a great tripod. So, when I'm talking about that is, say I'm in my 90-90. And a typical thing that I'll get people doing in my Kim Stretch class is a simple lift off from this position. So I am taking my hip right now into external rotation, which we haven't covered yet, but we will. Um, and all I will tell people to do is imagine taking your left ankle, because my left leg's in front, up towards the ceiling and simply lift. And all I want to see is them lift the leg and hold it. And a lot of times, what I'll see is huge compensation patterns. Number one, people won't be able to lift this leg off the ground. It'll be like this. They're going to try to lift their knee and like the ankles are just like hovering and they're just hating life. Other composition pattern that I see a lot is people will end up like caving with their chest and trying to lift up into this position. And they're basically cheating in the sense that they're trying to get their hip into flexion to get a better angle to lift this up. Or people just lean back to, again, cheat flexion into the hip to lift the thing up. And I see this all the time that people don't have good control over their adductors, which now makes me think that we have a huge asymmetry um, when it comes to our training. Because if you look at the history of our um, industry when it comes to um, training lower body, a lot of it has been glute focused. 
or you know glute med focus and it's a lot of like lateral stuff but we haven't had any emphasis on the opposite tissue which is our adductors and it's kind of similar to those people who love going to the gym and doing bench press all the time and no pulling exercises and we all know as of right now hopefully that the more pressing you do those shoulders tend to go here and that's why everyone's like oh you need to make sure you're doing your face pulls your rows whatever it is to counterbalance that but no one's really started talking about um, the effects of constantly doing like you know your glute extension exercises like hip thrusts or your abduction um, exercises like glute, um, glute mini band walks and things like that and now we have this huge asymmetry so usually what happens is when those muscles are not being used they become tight so you imagine that like bodybuilder or dude that goes to the gym every monday and just does bunch bench press over and over and over and over again then what happens is you know the lats tend to get pretty tight and you know you go to an rmt or a physio and they put their thumb into your lat you're like holy shit that's really really tight that's super painful the same thing will happen to those adductors within that groin um which is another um, issue when it comes to hip mobility. So now we have this new huge asymmetry that most people don't think about or don't do anything with. Um, from there, I wanna talk about internal and external rotation. So I'm gonna bring this back up. And there's a couple ways to do um, hip internal and external rotation and for the sake of this video, I'm going to show it in a standing position, adding hip flexion. So we already went over hip flexion. So if I bring my leg up, that's hip flexion. So internal rotation would be rotating out to the side and then external rotation would be here. So your hip is able to do this like axial rotation back and forth that requires you to activate quite a bit of musculature to do that um, movement. So the big thing with internal and external rotation, it has a huge carryover to many, many, many exercises. So when people are limited in external or internal rotation, that's definitely going to affect how you squat, you lunge, everything. The big thing is, again, going into that position, usually people actively can't get into the greatest amount of external rotation. Um, but passively, meaning I take your leg and move into external rotation, they, it tends to be a little bit easier. So when I see a huge gap between active and passive range of motion, it just tells me that when you challenge your body and you're like, here I go, I'm going to do this back squat, that means actively you can't move your hip joint the way it's designed and now you're kind of just putting shear forces compressive forces into the hip and over time it's not gonna like that um the other thing i want to get into is the idea of building a better hip is by constantly moving it without any kind of pain or pinching so i mentioned the word um, axial rotation so if I was taking my hip like earlier, showcasing my internal and external rotation, that's an axial rotation, meaning I'm, again, taking my femoral head, 
acetalbum, and all I'm doing is this, back and forth, right? And if you really think about it, when was the last time you actually took your hip and did this? Probably never, <laughs> right? So you doing this is probably gonna feel pretty tight and pretty grimy and crunchy and things like that. But if you understand the design of joints, the more you use them, like motion is lotion. I like using that analogy is that now you're surrounding that joint a little bit better with more synovial fluid fluid and uh, nutrients. So the more I do that, the better that joint's gonna move and glide, right? So there's that. Hip internal rotation, when people are limited, they're gonna force their hip into external rotation when they tend to squat. But before I get into that, man, this episode should be like two hours long, I just realized, and I'm trying to keep it to 30 minutes. Um, there's also different types of pelvises out there. I'm gonna go into this next. Um, when you look at cadavers or just like research on bony anatomy, they've figured out that there's six different types of pelvises depending on where your ancestors came from. Typically, Eastern European um, hips allow you to um, squat ass to grass and I've been blessed with that um, anatomy and I'm able to squat low with no issues. Um, a lot of Asian cultures, same thing. Their hips are just built to drop down no problem. More of a North American hip, it kind of gets stuck around 90 degrees. So if you already have um, a genetic disadvantage when it comes to um, hip mobility and then layer on top inactivity and sitting at a desk, like you're pretty much fucked and you need to move and do your daily cars that I've been telling people to do forever a lot more than the people that are uh, predisposed to a better um, hip sockets. Um, that being said, even for myself who has the genetic gift of being able to squat that low, if I say, for example, the next 10 years decide to stop exercising and just sit on my ass and eat Doritos and, you know, my muscle mass is starting to wither away and my, like, control over my muscles that surround my hip are just depleted but I still have that mobility, I just don't have the control over it. So now I'm predisposed to injury a lot more than someone who has a stiffer hip or a North American hip. Meaning, a lot of times it's like the analogy that, you know, my body's a Ferrari without any kind of brakes. So when I ask it to turn a corner really quick, I just go smash into the wall. So a lot of times having that mobile hip in order to squat or something and say I decide to squat down, I might not be able to control something and like I've seen it happen before where people like pop their hip out or they strain a deep, deep, deep hip muscle and it's super painful and all that happened was inactivity and I have no control over it. So a lot of times it's like now I got to rebuild hip stability. Um, I think I'm going to stop about the whole um, anatomy, how everything works and kind of start going into more of the exercise component. So I'm gonna utilize very generic um, exercises I use a lot for people in the clinic that I see and also for clients. So typically, if you are a person that just has tight ass hips and has been sitting on their ass forever 
and things just don't move the way it should and you have zero pain, these are the things that you should be doing. If you have pain, there's an underlying issue for it and we need to figure out what the pain trigger is and eliminate it and then add the exercise component towards it. So a lot of times when I teach my kin stretch class, it's like you can only do a movement if it's pain free. If pain is present, we are doing you no like no good like it's not going to help at all and you're just going to jam shit and make things worse so we're going to utilize a couple exercises that i use for people who just have tight shit and they need to loosen crap up so number one 90 90 which we already kind of got into a little bit but we need to go a little bit more in depth so the reason why i like the 90 90 if you look at the very nature of the setup if I am starting into this position, I drop both legs over, and now my hips are now into, my left one is my front and my right is my back. My left one is in external rotation, my right one is in internal rotation. The reason why this is like, probably my number one go-to hip mobility exercise is that it literally works everything. So I just said two things, external and internal rotation. As I rotate my torso towards this leg and I start leaning forward, imagine again the acetabulum and my femoral head, it's now moving. But the other thing that I'm getting people to do is to think of tilting their pelvis. So now I'm already rotating that acetabulum and I'm leaning forward with my torso to get more uh, of a better angle. And now I should start feeling it deep within like where my insertion of my hamstring such glute is and i'm now getting right into the hip capsule to stretch out all that surrounding stuff so if you remember earlier with my acetabulum femoral head you know i have my workspace in between but then all that stuff that's wrapped around it i'm stretching that stuff out which is a really 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 tight for a lot of people so i'm literally stretching that out and all i'm doing here is just going back and forth and now I can layer on top some breathing um, protocols where I take a deep diaphragmic breath, diaphragmic breath in, and then I exhale, going down and back up. With this hip, even though I'm not moving it, I'm still going into somewhat of an axial rotation indirectly for internal rotation. A lot of times when people are tight in their hips, internal rotation uh, specifically, this position, they won't be able to be in this upright position like I am without their hands down here or leaning over because all the shit is super tight. I've seen a lot of times when I set up in this position, people are trying to mimic me. They're kind of like this because all of this tight, this stuff is super tight and they can't strain out their torso. So it's like indirectly, we're already working this. So also in this position, I love, 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 love rotating my torso to further stretch out internal rotation. Same rule applies, I can go forward and back. For those people that are super tight, I can just get them into this position here and try to keep their torso straight while they stretch out um, internal rotation. So this is one of those things that works really, really, really well for directly affecting one hip and indirectly affecting the other. Now, the other thing that almost every person that I see that needs more hip mobility is getting them into a half kneeling position for a hip flexor stretch. 
and this goes twofold for also building stability. So when I get people doing a hip flexor stretch, I never have them doing this. This doesn't really do anything. I'm just kind of like thrusting and just throwing my whole like weight into my hip socket, which is not really getting anything done. But if I tuck my trailing toe, I start squeezing my glute and thinking of taking my pelvis and tilting it this way, I am now stretching all my hip flexors and also my into my quad that is usually pretty tight on a lot of people. And then I do a small little rock forward and back, right? The moment you don't squeeze your glute and don't tilt your pelvis, you can go forward as far as possible. That's not gonna do anything. So with that being said, if I chose exercises that now worked external, internal, and hip flexion, um, and also hip extension, um, I'm already doing myself a lot of favors going into my workout. Now the third exercise is going back into that half needle position and building hip stability. So kind of going back if someone was super flexible or had really good hip sockets like myself but zero strength, zero control over my tissues around uh, my hip sockets, then I wanna build as much stability as possible. So if I'm back into that half kneeling position and I take my front leg as close as possible to my other one and now I'm like, oh, I'm super wobbly. What am I doing now? I'm squeezing my glute to help me stabilize. All my lateral hip stabilizers are turned on in conjunction with my core. Sometimes I'll just get people holding this position in order to build stability. But most of the time, say a cable machine's on my left hand side here, grab the handle and I'm doing an anti-rotation press. And the moment I press out all the weight or even it with a, just a band, it's pulling me in this way. So all of this stuff has to now help me stabilize and I'm creating stability. And remember if you've been following my podcast, when I talk about stability, I'm talking about creating a safety net around the said joint that we're kind of helping to build. Um, I'm gonna leave it there because I could go on this topic forever and I don't want to take up all of your time, but hopefully that kind of gave you a better understanding of why the hip um, joint itself is so vital to so many movements that we do in the gym in everyday life. And when those you know, certain movement patterns are not um, functioning properly, that leads to a lot of injury, that leads to a lot of painful hips, pinching, things like that. So if you just took 10% of what I just um, talked about and put it into work and put it into action, your hips are gonna move a lot better. So again, everyone's an individual, so some of these things might have not felt good, some things might work really well, some won't. So feel free to reach out, DM me on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you consume my content. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach out because I am more than happy to help and also send me videos of how you squat, you deadlift, whatever it is, and we can have a great conversation to figure out what's going on with your hips. Um, that being said, that's it for me. Hit the show notes and watch this video if you've been listening to it over my podcast. Um, add me on Facebook and Instagram and give me a five-star review and I'm gonna continue giving you the best info out there on fitness and health and all that other fun stuff. Till next time, you guys. What's up, podcast listeners? Your host, Profound Metashevsky, for another edition 
of the podcast and video thing that I've been doing and posting on my YouTube and shout out to everyone who's been listening and subscribing and once again I'm going to say it over and over again if you are listening 100% hit the show notes and watch this video because it's going to be um, quite visual and I'm going to do some demos and also some exercise selection things that you can do at home before your workouts and your warm-ups, whatever it is, and uh, also subscribe. Um, so we're going to do some shout-outs because I always tend to forget and hopefully my laptop works here. Um, so 100% I am going to butcher this name and I feel terrible, but I am one of those people that can't pronounce things apparently um so really cool the last 24 hours um this one city out in mexico has been listening to my show 441 times oh here i go tuxtla gutierrez 100 butchered that i apologize so anyone from mexico please reach out and let me know how to pronounce it correctly and i've done that one more t uh, once before it was like a city out in sweden or someone and someone actually on my facebook reached out and just sent like a little voice clip and memo of how to pronounce it so shout out to that person who did that like i don't know a year ago um and then my number two most listened city all the way in colorado the city of boulder and number three, all the way in California, the city of San Francisco. So, funny enough that San Fran is my third most listened city because literally a year ago today, I was in San Fran for my functional release seminar and it was literally the last conference thing that I've went to where you actually got to travel. And it's kind of surreal that this whole pandemic now is like reaching its one year milestone for many of us when it comes to looking back a year ago today. But anyway, onwards and upwards, as they say, um, what we're going to talk about today is knee pain, because honestly, I think as much as everyone would like to think that, you know, they've done a good job trying to stay pain-free. We've all kind of experienced either some serious knee pain or just some knee pain that is annoying and you've had to modify a lot of exercises and things like that. And I want to get into kind of like the anatomy of it, why it matters, um, common reasons why people get knee pain, and kind of wrap it all up with some suggestions and some exercise prescription and things like that and I think probably the biggest thing when it comes to knee pain is figuring out why because most likely it's going to happen again and I think a lot of us who've gone to either a physio, chiro, massage, whatever it is, a lot of times when it comes to knee pain they tend to treat just the knee itself and again like that's a good thing to do to kind of lower inflammation and like you know the quality of the pain so then when you leave the clinic you can actually walk and not feel completely destroyed but there's usually a um an underlying issue that's got to look on the bigger picture so in my industry or i don't even know where i stole this saying from but um 
the knee joint is considered the stupid joint because it's usually dictated by the hip and the ankle. So usually when I see a patient or I have a client dealing with knee pain, right away I'm looking at how um, the hip and ankle move and the surrounding musculature. And then I also look at the knee itself because the knee needs to be able to move and I'll kind of explain why. So um, this is where the laptop is going to come super in handy. Because um, again, I'm a huge visual learner. And when it comes to anatomy, me just saying, you know, um, muscles doesn't really help anyone. And I feel like a lot of times when people are at, um, what's it called, uh, conferences or whatever, and people yell out a I'm yellow, say out a muscle name and everyone's supposed to know what that is. But um, just like last time, I'm really hoping that you guys will be able to see this. So this guy right here, well, you can see the ring light. Oh, there you go. It looks better. Um, so this is the sartorius muscle. So if you can see, I'm trying to get the ring out of there. Ooh, my laptop is super dirty. But you can see how the red line is kind of focused on where the muscle is, you can kind of see where it attaches from the hip to the knee. And the interesting thing about the sartorius or the next muscles I'm going to be kind of talking about is that the fact that they cross two joints. So it already shows how much influence now that this hip that may not be working the way it should um, is influencing the knee. So we already have one muscle that we're going to be talking about and some other ones down the line about how it influences our movement, right? Um, so if you think about one giant muscle literally running from your hip all the way down to your knee, we already have kind of a clue of where to go. So now I'm thinking, okay, what other, you know, muscle out there in the hip slash knee region would be also connected? So let's pull up... The quadricep muscle. So again, stupid ring light. So the green, you can see how it's connected to our pelvis and then goes all the way down to the knee. Another great example. And I think for most of us, you know, sitting at a desk all day, we can assume that those quads are quite tight. And if you are like anyone else out in the world, foam rolling, and you get to your quads, I think all of us go, oh shit, that's tight, ooh, that doesn't feel good. And then you wonder why a lot of people end up having hip pain. I mean, not hip pain, sorry, knee pain. Um, the other one that I wanna bring up as well is the muscle called the gracilis. So if you, again, you can see past my damn ring light. Pelvis, inside of the pelvis is basically an adductor. It goes across, again, inside towards the knee. So I've already brought up a bunch, well, three muscles so far, um, how they're connected to the knee. So now imagine those three muscles are not functioning the way they should. They might have some tightness, and that's in air quotes, and that's going to influence how the knee moves. So for example, if I know that my quads are super tight, and I'm trying to do an exercise like 
a reverse lunge. And I actually want to demo that. So I'm going to move this guy and hopefully I don't mess anything up. So actually, I'm going to make this go a little bit lower. Thank you for bearing with me. So we are looking at my right leg. If I know that my quad goes from the hip down over towards my knee, and I know that these guys are super tight because I'm in this position all day, and I go into a reverse lunge, and all of this is now being stretched, and I go down to that reverse lunge, I'm gonna start feeling that tightness going all the way down from my hip down towards my knee. So if I allow my muscle to, again, air quotes, stay tight, things like reverse lunges, jogging, running, like anything that requires you to do hip extension is probably not going to be um, the best feeling. And that knee is going to kind of take on a lot of that pressure. Now, if we think about this atorius that goes from the hip across and then down into the inside of the knee, and we're also thinking about the gracilis that goes from the inside of our pelvis down into the inside of our knee, and we're trying to do, let's say, lateral lunges, lateral split squats, we're trying to play soccer, and all these guys are tight, and that allows our knee to flex and extend because it goes across this way. And this is one of the reasons why in my um, kin stretch class, I do a lot of adductor work because people just have no control over it. So actually a simple um, exercise that I tend to give a lot in my kin stretch classes for um, this specific reason, and I'm gonna try to get this nice and low so you guys can see. So if I was, in my 90-90 position with my left leg in front. Really simply, all I get people to do in my kin stretch class is to demonstrate their active range when it comes to one hip flexion and um, adductor um, strength, actively lifting it up off the ground. So essentially all I tell people to do is to think of getting their left ankle, in this case, to lift off the ground and hold and isometrically hold it without like leaning back, caving in or anything like that to get these guys stronger. And as we get this guy moving and grooving a little bit better, adding knee extension and flexion, because again, like the thing like the satorius, the gracilis, they're all on the inside that cover our knee. Also our quad again, goes from our hip down over onto our knee. So when it comes to the relation of these uh, muscles that cover two joints, it's probably quite important to also demonstrate not only um, what they can singularly do just at the knee, but also at the hip. So in this case, I'm adding hip flexion. And now if I wanted to challenge those three muscles, it's also adding some knee extension and flexion to really focus on getting all those muscles um, actively moving uh, through both joints. And anytime I throw this exercise or any other kind of variation, utilizing those adductors and hip flexors that um, cross both joints, people have a really, really, really tough time with them. So now that kind of gets my brain kind of thinking like, okay, if people are having trouble with that, just lifting their own leg off the ground, when it comes to 
running, playing soccer, doing lunges, step ups, back squats, deadlifts in the gym, something is going to have to give. And a lot of times it's the knee is going to take up the grunt of the work. And over time, it's kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And now I have soreness around the knee and it might be most likely due to the hip. So other than the muscles that I've just kind of spoke about, there's other ones surrounding the knee that will um, influence how much movement you get. And it's usually all the muscles in your hip that focus on hip flexion. So hip flexion, again, if you don't remember from previous videos, is when I drive my leg up towards the ceiling, I'm doing hip flexion. So if you think about what we do on a daily basis and sit all day, all those hip flexors are gonna end up getting quite tight. And when we have those hip flexors quite tight, it's going to influence how the pelvis moves, right? So if I'm trying to do any, any exercise that requires my lower body, and if I don't have adequate hip mobility, again, the knee kind of takes the grunt of the work and it kind of sucks. So if you think about um, when I demos, demonstrated hip cars, it kind of goes through all the ranges that a healthy hip can do. So if you look here, how I coach hip cars, I also add adduction right off the bat. So kind of similar to what we did here in the 9090, as I'm driving my leg up, I'm going into adduction and external rotation, coming out of it, rotating around and behind. So in a healthy hip, all these ranges should be available with any kind of compensation. So when I do hip cars, you don't see anything else in my body move other than my hip. So going back and forth, I'm demonstrating what a healthy hip can do. So now imagine, you know, the average Joe where they sit all day and those ranges are not available to them. Again, the knee kind of takes the brunt of the work or worse, also the low back. So usually if you find yourself in that pain category where you're trying to move and feel better, you usually have two, I would classify three things, but the most common ones are um, low back pain and knee pain. And then the third one usually is like shoulder pain, all due to what's happening at the hip, right? And if you think about it too, it's like the hip is designed to be a super, super mobile joint. The low back is supposed to be designed as a stable joint and the knee as well is supposed to be designed as a um, stable joint. So if you have one joint in the middle between those, it's almost like a sandwich um, that's not doing its job. Now the low back and the knee have to make up for the lack of mobility through the hip. So now that we kind of looked at all the stuff that influences the hip, now we also have another um, kind of player to the game when it comes to knee pain, which is our ankle. So if you think about um, your ankle, it has quite a bit of different um, abilities to do certain movements. So if you think about, again, if you're lunging, walking, playing soccer, running, doing CrossFit, whatever it is, your ankles need some adequate um, ankle mobility and if you can remember hopefully you can see um, ankles 
can either go into plantar flexion, so me pushing my toes straight, or dorsiflexion, driving my toes up towards my knee. So like a simple ankle mobility exercise is just me driving my front knee forward and back and kind of going through the range of angle dorsiflexion. So now if you think about it, um, even how I'm sitting right now in a deep squat, one, I need hip mobility to do that, and two, I also need really, really good ankle mobility. If I don't have ankles that move um, adequately enough, just enough in order for me to squat, um, lunge, step up, whatever it is, again, that knee's gonna take up all the work. And if you remember earlier, um, our knee is a stable joint and it wants to stay stable, but if it doesn't have um, hip mobility and ankle mobility, it's like a double whammy and now you're dealing with a lot of shit. <laughs> um, so looking at ankle mobility, um, simple things that you can do. One, um, ankle cars to get some motion in there. And ankle cars, I've posted before, but I don't think I've ever brought it up on the show. So if I have my right leg in front and my left leg bent, left hand goes through, right hand holds left hand. And I start drawing big, 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 big circles with my foot. And what's interesting too, is when I bring this exercise in my Kim stretch classes, Almost everyone is really good going here to plantar flexion or dorsiflexion, but when it comes to like going onto the inside or outside limits to kind of create that circle, it almost is like choppy and like it's not a smooth movement because when is the last time have you ever really moved your ankle to those kind of like, if you look at my hand being flat and that's your foot, going into a you know inversion or eversion position and adding like abduction and adduction movements. Like, I don't think we've ever really done it because we always walk straight and never into lateral positions to kind of develop that movement. So now when it comes to like squatting, lunging, things like that, if we already know that those outer limits going into inversion, eversion, we're not that, um, let's say, you know, adequate at moving in those ranges, again, that knee's gonna track in weird places and that can cause some pain. So like knee tracking, if you look at my knee, when I want to lunge or anything like that, it should kind of fall in line where my foot is pointing. And a lot of times when people don't have adequate ankle dorsiflexion where I can go forward and like when I test ankle uh, mobility in my assessment, the biggest thing is I get people in this half kneel position and just tell them, okay, to drive your knee as far forward as possible over your toe. And people with really good mobility is just like, yeah, sure, no problem. But a lot of times our body's really, really, really good at cheating movement. I always say this. And it's sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. So what I usually see, if I am in front of you, and I know I'm wearing all black and I should have worn different clothing, but a lot of times if you look at my fingers, this is gonna be to represent my knee. People start going forward and at your end range where your body goes, oh, you don't have enough ankle dorsiflexion, let me give it to you in a different way. So usually what happens, it comes forward and then the hip rotates out to give you more. So it's throwing you into almost internal rotation and that becomes like a movement behavior. So every time you're required to get enough ankle dorsiflexion, whole body goes into this position, 
kind of giving you a false sense of ankle dorsiflexion. And a lot of times that is something called a valgus collapse where the knee caves in. So if I was squatting, I didn't have one adequate hip mobility or enough ankle dorsiflexion or mobility in general, stuff like this happens to get more depth and just even a small little bit because sometimes it's not both knees it's usually just like the ones where I'm coming down in my squat and this will happen to get more and over time same problem say I'm doing lunges split squats it's just like a small little thing where it constantly caves in and you know straw that breaks the camel's back and now it's like okay the inside of my knee is really hurting so kind of moving forward in the next bit that's one of the most common things is people get pain on the inside of their knee due to that valgus collapse because it's just a moving behavior that your body kind of learned to give you a false sense of mobility. Now the other uh, most common kind of painful spot for a lot of people is on the outside of the knee. And again, that goes back to adequate hip mobility, enough ankle mobility, and usually what causes that if you look at the anatomy of kind of the top of the quad and let's actually i think i have a good photo of that just hang on here we're learning together you know this is great where is it so where are we so this guy totally stole it from a different website and you can see the copyright in the back, but um, if you look on this side right here, again, freaking ring light, and we look on the outside where we have our vastus lateralis mu muscle that kind of goes all underneath where the IT band is. And like, you know, everyone talks about like IT band syndrome. One, you rolling out your IT band over and over and over again is not going to fix um, your IT band syndrome is probably just gonna lessen the intensity, but that band is designed to be super, super, super tight. Like you can, I can't remember the number, but they've done a bunch of research where, you know, in order to loosen that IT band, like you almost need like 2000, 2000 pounds of force per square inch to actually like loosen it up. So it's designed to be tight, but that doesn't mean that the muscles of your hip that run down to the outside of the knee, if the, all of these are super tight, then that's going to kind of pull on all this stuff and even lightly touching the outside of the knee is going to hurt. So again, we're looking at hip mobility that's preventing you from doing certain exercise, certain movements that'll cause lateral knee pain. Now the other one, in my experience, not that common, but it does happen, is pain on the front side of the knee. And usually, again, quads can be super tight causing the pain in here, but usually like the front of the knee stuff is due to kind of a sports injury. If you've had like an ACL sprain, tear, things like that, um, that causes quite a bit of discomfort and pain. Now, what are some, maybe like knee friendly exercises. Cause I get that question a lot. It's like, Hey, if I've had knee pain forever off and on, it's always been an issue. I've had my ACL reconstructed, whatever it is. Right? So one, I kind of look at, okay, we need to have adequate hip mobility, adequate ankle mobility. And when those things are covered, now I'm looking at knee friendly exercises. So 
Things like back squats, probably not gonna be a good idea. Things like lunges, probably not gonna be a good idea. Things like step ups, probably not gonna be a good idea. So essentially anything that requires knee flexion is going to bug the knee like a bitch. Like think about all the muscular structure that we were talking about that kind of wraps around the knee. You bending it further, now you're lengthening all this tissue, it's not going to feel fucking great. So you're gonna have to find things that don't aggravate it. And when we do that, when we find exercises that don't aggravate the knee joint that's causing you pain, it gives it time to settle the fuck down and then you can start working on other stuff to improve the function of the knee, which we'll get to pretty soon. So anyone that I have that has knee pain, I look on, will look for exercises that don't require a lot of knee flexion. So something as simple as glute bridges. So if you look at the nature of the glute bridge, like, yeah, I'm in knee flexion, but most people with knee pain can get into this position without any pain, and we're just doing bridges. We can do single leg glute bridges. We can do feet elevated on a box or a bench um, glute bridges. We can do hip thrusts. We can do single leg hip thrusts. And from there, if we wanted to get a little bit more fancy, single leg deadlift. Like that's gonna be a huge player because one, it doesn't require a lot of knee flexion, doesn't require a lot of ankle dorsiflexion. So we're kind of on the clear there. Deadlifts in general are gonna be great um, substitution. We can do hamstring curls with a stability ball. We can do glute bridges off the stability ball. Like anything that kind of just keeps the knee in one kind of locked position almost, when you think about any kind of bridge variation, tends to help a lot. Now, looking at the knee joint itself. So if you um, think about it, um, the knee joint does have a movement itself. So there's something like your um, shin bone, so your tibia that runs down to your ankle up towards your knee. It's able to actually like move within your knee joint itself. So when I am in a seated position and I'm kind of about to do ankle cars that we were talking about before, we can teach and also assess if we have adequate tibial rotation in order to lunge, squat, run, or all any lower body um, exercise. And when I have my kin stretch classes, this is the thing that people struggle the most. So I've kind of, based on my own experience, realized that two things. Number one, most people don't have adequate control over their knee joint and adequate um, uh, tibial rotation. And the other one is that people have limited tibial rotation, which throws a lot of things off when it comes to going to the gym. So what a knee car looks like is I drive my toes up towards my face. So now I'm locking out the ankle joint from any kind of movement and it's gonna be solely on just the knee joint itself. I'm also placing my hip into as much knee flexion as, um, not knee flexion, uh, hip flexion as much as possible to ensure that I'm only moving through the tibia. So if I rotate externally, I'm moving my tibia right now within the joint and I go back and forth just like this, almost like a little window wiper and I'm moving my tibia within my knee joint. And a lot of times, I wish I had a little sticky note, but 
if you think about it, if you look at my thumb, if I now rotate, now my thumb is out to the side, I rotate in, it's rotating in. So back and forth, I'm moving my tibia. Now think about this position that I'm in right now. It looks very similar to what we do in a daily basis at the gym. So what exercise forces you to go into hip flexion and ankle dorsiflexion? Squats. So if you think about it from a standing position, I'm going into hip flexion and I'm needing ankle dorsiflexion. So what I'm actually doing is asking my body to get adequate tibial rotation. So what if, based on my experience again, in my kin stretch classes that basically everyone that attends, and they do get better over time, has no control of how this tibia moves or they have limited tibial rotation, where's all the pressure gonna go? It's probably gonna go into your low back and it's probably gonna go into your knee over and over and over and over and over again when you're doing squats. And then on top of that, you've signed yourself up to a boot camp bullshit thing where you're doing squat jumps and burpees that all require adequate tibial rotation. So over and over and over, it's like a square pig in a round hole going through and now you have knee pain. So really, really when it comes down to how to fix knee pain is finding exercises that don't flare it up, which we've already went over to, and getting adequate mobility through your ankle and your hip, which we've already went through, and finding um, control over your tibia and getting um, a little bit more range of motion. So, exercise prescription for all those things. Hip cars, which I already demoed, would be number one. Um, hip 90-90 for external rotation. Finding your end range, holding it for two minutes. At the top of two minutes, you're gonna do pails and rails, meaning you're gonna drive your ankle and knee down into the ground as hard as possible for 10 seconds. After the 10 seconds, you'll realize you'll be able to go a little bit further because you just spoke to your nervous system asking for more range. From there, the next thing is your rails. So you're gonna uh, ask your nervous system again for more range of motion by thinking of driving this leg up off the ground without leaning back. And then you're gonna do the same thing on the other side. Then, for the ankles, you're gonna go into a half kneeling position, get into your end range of ankle dorsiflexion. Pails and rails uh, after the two minutes, and essentially what you're gonna do for pails is you're gonna be driving your toes down into the ground as hard as possible for 10 seconds, release, get a little bit further, and then rails will be your toes going up for 10 seconds. And then, for tibial rotation, again, all of these have to be pain-free. If they're not pain-free, then you're not ready. You're gonna be in a half kneeling position. And guess what? You're gonna rotate your foot in, keeping your knee where it is. And now we have some rotation into internal rotation of our um, tibia. And then pails and rails will be trying to push your foot against your, um, your fingers. And then rails will be trying to coming off it without lifting up the heel. And then you can do the same thing the other way. Pails and rails here, pails and rails here. Those three for creating more um, range of motion, as well as ankle cars, knee cars, hip cars, finding um, exercises that are not um, required so much knee flexion like I'm in right now, this deep squat. And over time, it will get better. It's just being patient. And again, yes, you can layer on top some um, physical therapy, chiropractic, whatever it is, to kind of speed up the process. But a lot of times it's just 
finding what works, keeping at it for a very long time and the knee pain will go away. Again, the biggest thing when it comes to training around knee pain is to ensure you're not going through pain. And when pain is present, backing off and finding less range of motion within the exercise you're doing, eliminating the um, exercise completely or something else. So that being said, that was a lot of information. If you have any other questions based on knee pain or your knee pain specifically, let me know and I'm happy to help. Um, hit the show notes, add me on Facebook and Instagram, subscribe to my YouTube channel. For all those who are listening right now, hit the show notes and watch this video. I do demonstrate quite a bit of stuff. And that's it for me. If you guys have any more questions, feel free to reach out. And that's it. Until next time. What is up, my podcast listeners and YouTube subscribers now? Because I think I'm at almost 230, 240 subscribers. So shout out to all my new subscribers on YouTube. And hopefully you've been enjoying all the video content. And for all my podcast listeners out there that haven't subscribed yet, 100% hit the show notes of this episode if you are um listening and watch this video because again this is going to be um somewhat a hands-on demoing type of a video um so yeah shout out to all my listeners and watchers um so today what we're going to talk about is elbow pain because someone reached out to me over instagram asking about um pain in their elbow and what they should do in the gym to ensure that they don't make it worse or you know what exercises to avoid and things like that so um just like my other videos i think i'm going to kind of go by a um case by case basis when it comes to um certain joints what to do what exercises to avoid but the elbow is one of those joints that tends to take a lot of beating. So there's two primary um, things that go wrong with the elbow. And it's usually the outside of the elbow that's injured, painful, and just flares up and the inside of the elbow. So there's two kind of um, terms that we need to know. And one of them is tennis elbow and golfer's elbow. So an easy way to remember that, and I can't remember where I stole this from, but tennis elbow is on the outside of the elbow. And if you think about it, most men, their um, hairy arms tend to be on the outside of their elbow. So this tends to be hairy and it's kind of like a tennis ball with a little fuzzy part on the material that's used. So that's an easy way to remember the um, tennis elbow. And on the inside of the elbow, tends to be smooth even on the hairiest dudes. And it's kind of smooth like a golf ball. So where this kind of comes from is in the tennis world, they tend to swing this way over and over and over again. And it becomes almost like an overuse injury. Same thing in golf when people kind of 
can't really see me, but uh, when people go through their swing, and I am a lefty, so when I go into my back swing, you can see that my elbow is exposed at that top position, and as I drive through, my elbow will extend, and I end up rotating with that elbow across. That tends to take up the grunt of the work, and I'm just gonna adjust my camera here, because it's kind of tilted up, and you can just see like, top of my chin anyway um so those are the two that tend to happen quite a bit there's a lot of reasons why that happens but it tends to be due to an overuse thing but but um it does tend to happen if other joints are not cooperating so if you look at the musculature of the forearm in itself there are a lot of smaller muscles that kind of run across here all the way into this part of your kind of wrist slash forearm that tends to be flat. So even if you took the um, time to like palpate um, certain musculature of the forearm, you'll kind of be able to figure out what uh, muscles you're dealing with. So an easy way to actually, and you can do this at home, if you have a slight bend in your elbow, you give yourself a big fist and like think of flexing your bicep, this muscle right here that just kind of pops out, you can already feel. And if you like travel underneath it, that's where it kind of falls under. And you can actually feel the divots between each muscle. If you like really push in there hard, you can find each muscle individually. And then as you follow along, you end up in this little section called the outcroppers where all these muscles turn into tendinous structure and then they all kind of come here to the wrist. And the same thing on the back side of your wrist is the same thing. It's like a bunch of muscles that kind of run through here and then kind of finish through here. So typically, if you think about all these muscles in our forearm, they're meant to squeeze super tight to create tension, but they're also able to help you flex and extend the wrist and move your wrist and also pronate your elbow and supinate your elbow and these are the motions and if you think about what we do on a daily basis um, we use them a lot so if you are playing a sport like tennis or golf which requires a lot of repetition so again tennis you're hitting like this constantly or in golf, sorry, you're here and you're coming down. So there's other activities that tend to also flare up the elbow. So if you are an, a carpenter or some sort of tradesperson, um, person who does renos or painting, things like that, elbows are usually the ones that um, take quite a bit of beating. So, Essentially, um, the first step is to obviously go see a medical professional like a chiropractor, a physio, RMT, whatever it is, to get the pain down to a point where you can start rehabbing it. It might sound counterintuitive, but most of the time you want to strengthen the um, forearm uh, muscles so farmer carries are huge. And that's why I always tell my clients and patients that when I train them, every time you grab a dumbbell, a barbell, a kettlebell, you are 
death gripping those things to ensure that these guys are strong so that when you decide to do something repetitive like paint your whole fucking house one weekend, your elbow is not destroyed. But there is going to be a period of time where when you're dealing with an elbow injury, it just needs some goddamn rest. But um, based on my experience with um, the rehab side of things, things like rock tape or kinesio tape work beautifully to kind of carry on the effects of treatment. So highly recommend looking into that um, or just asking a physio or chiro who's certified in it um, to do that for you. The other thing too is instrument assisted um, soft, soft tissue mobilization where it's just basically blading, Graston technique, um, does wonders on tendons. Um, even for me, when I injured my elbow, actually funny enough, a couple months back when I was um, constantly going to the storage and moving stuff and I felt the little tendon in here in my elbow kind of go and blading helped a lot. Um, but after that, kind of initial stage of, um, what's it called? Inflammation and it kind of goes down, we gotta start adding movement. So the big thing is elbows are definitely overlooked. People don't think about, oh, I need to work on my elbow mobility, but your elbows do have quite a bit of movement. And if you can control um, when needed your elbow joint, then you're going to be better well equipped for everyday life. Because I kind of look at the elbow joint as one of those joints that are really, really important when it comes to everyday life. So if you're picking up your kid, you're grabbing groceries, you're helping someone move, like these elbows move quite a bit and take up a lot of the work. So um, elbow cars are my go-to. So if I was standing, I have my arms out in kind of the anatomical position. I'm gonna go into fists. I used to do it palms out, but I like going into fists because after that inflammation stage, we can grab like tennis balls or lacrosse balls to create a little bit more tension to get these uh, muscles working a little bit. But uh, for the sake of this video, we're just gonna go into fists. And I want you to think of, you're gonna do almost like a bicep curl. When I get to this position, I am actively rotating my fists this way. So if you saw my hands out, I'm literally rotating as far as possible. Because remember, if you look at your uh, elbows, they can supinate and pronate. So when I get to the top of this little bicep curl, I am trying to rotate as far as possible to get into my end range. Because if I look up from a side view and I just do a curl, and that's where I stay, even though my elbows can go this far, I should train in those end ranges because in end range positions is where you get an injury. So if you again, think about the tennis um, analogies, say for some reason you backhand and you go into extension and for some reason you try to hit really hard and your form was off and your elbow just snaps a little bit too far forward in your end range of extension, that's where it usually should happen. So every time we do elbow cars, we're going into our end range. So now I'm in my fist position like I was showing earlier. From here, I'm gonna now rotate into pronation and same idea. So if I'm off to the side, 
I am rotating forward again, trying to get more with those thumbs, right? Whereas if I just did this and that's it, even though I can go there, whole nother story. And then from there, I'm gonna come back down to the start position, back up and then reverse the motion. So that is a simple elbow car that one, everyone should be doing all the freaking time. Now, if you've been following my work for a while and you understand that I'm a huge advocate for movement, you do understand that our bodies move in variance. Our elbows don't just do bicep curl and like hammer curl, reverse curl variations. It does a lot more because whatever your elbow does, it's dictated by your shoulder. So what happens if I decide to do elbow cars here, starting in this, you know, like if I'm holding my steering wheel type of position, right? So literally the same principles apply. I can do my elbow cars just like this. Because again, our bodies move in variance, so why not train it that way? So then whenever something happens in the real world, we're ready for it. And now think about how many different planes of motion our shoulder goes into. Like if you think about when we were doing shoulder cars, right? Look at how many different positions my shoulder can go into where I can do elbow cars. So if I decide to do a shoulder car here, back here, like why not do my elbow cars in this position? If I wanna be sport specific, and I put that in air quotes, and I am a golfer, and I go into my back position, why not do my elbow cars in that position to make it more specific to my sport, right? Like the, possibilities are endless at that point and people don't like th go down that pathway but I try to think like okay if our bodies are meant to do so such extraordinary things and it can adapt to different terrain and environments and you know why not try to apply that kind of knowledge to how we train and that's what I believe in the whole FRS system kind of believes that that's how we can create better functioning human beings and not just, I'm gonna to go to the gym and sit down and do the chest press machine. I'm gonna move on to the next one and do the horizontal row machine. And then I'm gonna to go to the next one and do the leg extension. Like you're missing a lot that you can do, right? And that's where the whole term of like functional training comes in because your body's more than just one movement it does a lot of different things and then you'll notice that people move differently from one person to the other and that's a good thing that just leaves so much more room for your body to adapt and if you understand you know the how your body adapts to stress the more different types of stimulus you get um, kind of inputted to your body it has time to adapt to it and get better at it Right? If you're doing the same shit from when you used to train in college, you're probably not gonna get that far. You need to adapt your body constantly. And honestly, movement training is one of those ways to have full control. Now going back to the elbow. So we showed one exercise. Now let's also talk about the exercise that you should probably stay away from. So if you're overloading 
your elbows with stuff like bicep curls and tricep extensions and dips and stuff that you have no business doing, that's gonna be step number one. Those things are going to flare up the elbow joint quite a bit. Things like bench press, it's going to flare it up. Now, let's take an extreme example and say someone went to the clinic yesterday, two days ago with severe elbow pain, but still wants to train on Monday. And by Monday, it's still not good. Gripping stuff is probably not going to make things better because it's going to aggravate it. But if you wanted to train with a false grip, like a loose grip, you can. So one of my favorite ways to do that and also get the benefit of getting all those postural muscles working, because I'm gonna link this together, just you, just you wait. Um, when you look at the musculature of our back, you're limited by your grip. So if I'm doing a TRX row, when I'm squeezing super tight, I'm kind of not putting all my, how I wanna phrase this, all my potential into those postural muscles because I'm preventing it by my grip. Meaning, when you grip super tight, things won't move back there as they should, whereas if it was a loose grip, now I have kind of more movement. That being said, if you take a band, just like a regular chin-up band, those red ones that I always use in my videos, and place it um, around a squat rack, pillar, door handle to do face pulls, but slipping your wrists into the band loops and then doing a face pull, now I am activating all my postural muscles because now there's no limiting factor of my grip preventing everything from moving. So that being said, you can now train without overdoing it in here, right? Um, other like things that can help really uh, well are, um, this is the only time I would use those um, gym straps around the wrist to hold onto something. But other than that, you gotta train your grip. And a lot of people get to elbow pain because they forget about grip training and it's all because people get in the bad habit of loose grip holding things. And that's, I already said it, you need to fucking squeeze shit as hard as possible in the gym. Now, the other thing that I wanna mention is if you think about our shoulder, it dictates exactly what the elbow is going to do. So usually when we see in the clinic, on the clinic side, uh, clinic side of things, the elbow that has pain usually has a really shitty shoulder when it comes to mobility. So now if you think about it, people that press overhead and do chin-ups or pull-ups overhead, the elbow is going to take a grunt of the work. Meaning, imagine my shoulder mobility is like this. One, I need to get here to go overhead. What happens to my elbows is that as I try to get into full extension and say I'm trying to do a chin up, all the pressure is going to go into here. And I've seen this happen too, um, working with an individual coming to me for elbow pain and I looked over his program and there was like almost every day there was a lot of fucking chin ups. And he had pain on the inside of the elbow and I'm like, okay, well let's, 
let's think about this. If I have someone in this position with not enough mobility and they're constantly pulling, that first initial pull is not through the back, it's through these guys because they're muscling through their bicep and this guy is gonna take quite a bit of the grunt of the work. And time and time again, over and over and over and over, overuse, that thing's not meant to pull a full male's weight over and over again, and now the thing hurts, right? So a lot of times it's just figuring out, you know, maybe it's not the actual joint itself, it's maybe dictated by another joint. And now another thing too is the wrist joint too. And if you remember when I first kind of started doing these videos, I did a episode called the joint by joint theory. And in there, I mentioned that when it comes to a painful joint, it's, the culprit's not usually the joint itself, it's usually the joint above or below causing the issue. So the other thing too is looking at wrist mobility and function. Here's the funny thing. Every time I do um, my kin stretch classes, we go through the whole car's routine. One, most people don't move their joints for the full range of motion, so I ensure that everyone does that at least in my class. Two, I am assessing every single person in my class during that time. I'm looking over every single person to ensure that they are not going to fuck themselves up with the stuff that I chose for the class. So when I see people do wrist cars with terrible control and terrible mobility, I'm going to adjust my class or make something specific for um, the entire class for that one person with terrible wrist mobility. So when you have limited wrist mobility, both extension and flexion, what do you think is gonna feel tight in the forearms? This guy. If this is super tight, what are the chances of your elbow being able to pronate, supinate, bend, um, flex, extend, and all those things? Probably not very well, right? So wrist cars should be part of the um, rehab slash daily routine slash in your warmup. I literally do wrist cars every single day, every time before a workout as well, because I know personally that when I have a day where I'm gonna be doing a lot of pressing or say push-ups, my wrists don't feel the greatest when I don't get them moving. So what we're going to do is wrist cars. So elbows are gonna be super tight towards the rib cage. The most important thing, and I always tell people, imagine your cell phone on your forearm. Don't move your forearm because your phone is going to fall. I say this all the time and I tell people, look down on your elbows, don't let them move. People still fucking do it because they have no idea how to move just their wrists without moving their forearm. So it's either a control thing, like a neuromuscular thing, or they really have shitty mobility through their elbows and wrists, and they have no clue. So together, elbows tight, fingers are glued together, and you're gonna go down into extension as far as possible. You're gonna go into the center, up towards the ceiling, out to the side and down, and then you're gonna reverse it. As we do this, if you notice, my forearms are not moving. It is just my wrists. As people do this, they end up doing weird things. It's like as they come up, they start bending their elbows 
thinking that they're getting more extension, but they're not. Or as they come in and they know they don't have this motion, the elbows come off, or they just do this thing. It's so awkward and weird. And they start rotating their forearm because they have no control over these wrists or just poor mobility. So now I'm thinking every time that person goes into a push-up position, a mountain climber, burpees, because everyone fucking does burpees, fucking hate them. Um, funny enough, I actually just posted a meme on that. You guys should go check it out. Um, literally, okay, this is the reason why I hate burpees. Take an exercise for a general population person, and we're talking about elbows and wrists right now, and generally, because we're all here all day, click clacking away on our laptops. This gets tight, wrists get tight. So now let's throw our entire body weight into the floor and then jump right back up and then do it again. And usually when you're doing this exercise, it's not just for like five reps, it's you're doing this for 10 plus reps or you're doing this for 30 seconds. As you fatigue, you're going to have less control and you're gonna throw more of your weight into your wrist over and over and over again. And then you wonder why people have elbow pain and wrist pain. It doesn't take like a genius to figure that out. So what you should do instead is constantly wrist cars and things like pails and rails. So from a movement standpoint, I'm gonna take you guys down a lot lower because we need to get to the floor. So for those listening, this would be a good time for you to probably go onto your computer or phone and hopefully you can see my hand. Okay, so most people have trouble getting into wrist extension, which is me going like this. So what you're going to do is place your hand down, you can see that, um, hand down into extension and you can do two at the same time. You don't have to go one at a time. You want to end up into a stretch position where you can feel all of this being stretched out. You're gonna hold for two minutes. At the top of the two minutes, we're gonna do our pails contraction, meaning your fingertips are going to push into the ground as hard as possible for 10 seconds without any pain. After the 10 seconds are done, you're gonna notice that you're like, oh, I can go a little bit further. You just spoke to your nervous system to ask for more range. Now, what you're gonna do is the opposite, which is a rails contraction, where you're gonna take your fingertips and try to drive them up to your belly. So, that being said, it's not gonna come off the ground. So if I try it right now, it's not really happening, but I'm using all of this stuff to try to lift it. And the only way to cheat is if I lean forward and now I can lift them up. But that's not the goal. You're trying to do an isometric contraction where you're just like trying to lift it, lift, 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 and then relax. What that does is slowly I am telling my little muscle cells in there to create better tissue, to lay down a better foundation for better resilient tissue. And the more I ask it, the better it's going to get. And funny enough, in my first um, ebook, The Ironclad Body Training System, I demonstrate the power of pails and rails for my own wrists. And it's funny, when I took my FRC back in 2018, it was a long time ago already, um, 
when we were doing assessments on wrist extension, I like put my hands down wrist extension and I remember because I took a photo of this the next day when I was in the gym. So arms here and I went down an extension and my left one was like not going down. I was like, what the fuck? How did I never notice this? And then I was like, okay, has this ever bugged me? And I was like, you know what? When I get into a workout and sometimes when I go into a push-up position, say in my warm-up to do a couple push-ups, sometimes when I'm not warm enough, I get this like weird sharp pull into my little ring finger here. And then my wrist starts feeling super weird and tight. And then every time I try to like go back into that position, it just hurts. Another example is when I used to do a lot of barbell Olympic lifts and you know, getting into the snatch position, my wrist did not feel good in that position either. And sometimes when I'd get into a clean position, the left side did not feel good. And I'm like, cause I didn't have enough wrist extension. And then funny enough, um, that same side, um, this was a while ago, probably seven years ago, I was getting pain on the inside of my elbow. So look at that, that little connection right there, all because of my wrist. Luckily, it didn't happen a lot, and it's because I have good shoulder mobility, so I had that going for me. But for the most general population person, their shoulder mobility sucks and their wrist mobility sucks, so they have a high chance of getting elbow pain. So it is super, super, super important to do these things to ensure that you don't end up with um, elbow pain. Another thing that you can do is a lot of soft tissue work around the forearm. So if I had my lacrosse ball and something really, really simple is like literally placing the ball onto the forearm and pushing it against the wall. And then what I like to do is with my other hand, I hold my wrist and I literally just roll against the wall back and forth. And then I can do the same thing on the inside. I do that before my workout and you know, I'll kind of cover all the areas. Cause again, remember foam rolling does not change tissue quality. What it does is kind of prep the tissue and also send a signal to the nervous system that it can take the emergency break off to, you know, be like chill. Like we got this, we're going to have a good workout. So I'm gonna leave it there. There's a lot of information when it comes to um, the elbow joint when it comes to pain. But it's one of those joints that when it flares up, it fucking sucks and you can barely do anything in the gym. So hopefully that kind of gave you some ideas, some guidance. If you need more help, feel, feel free to reach out. For those listening, highly recommend you watch uh, the video because I demonstrated quite a bit. And for those listening who haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, 100% do so. I post a lot of videos, especially exercises, and I'm hit the show notes, watch the video, add me on Facebook, add me on Instagram. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Till next time.